That's in the Old Testament, almost the end of the book uh, of the Old Testament books in the Bible. And uh, we're coming right along here. Uh, as you are well aware, we started here a while back, coming through the book of, uh, or really coming through all the books of the Bible, laying them out, getting them together here, and, and putting them in uh, order so you would have a better understanding of how the Word of God goes together. And uh, we started with uh, Genesis and then began to walk our way right through the Bible. Now what we were trying to do, what we are trying to do, is that we know in the next couple of years, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, we'll put some things together here and uh, talk about it, we know that in the next couple of years, God is going to begin to develop some real uh, people ministries in our church. We've been together now about a year and a half, and uh, we've seen God uh, bring the people that we need and continue to bring the people that we need who really understand uh, not only the Word of God, but have a love for the Word of God and love for God. And uh, God is building a base. And so we thought that uh, we needed to come through to put everybody on the same page of really developing an understanding of how the Scriptures go together, book by book. That, and I know many of you are doing this. You're coming through the books of the Bible, and you're getting the material, and then you're putting those notes in your Bible like a ready reference um, because we've told you many, many times the best study Bible you'll ever have is your own putting your own notes, your own experiences, the thing that God shows you and that God gives you. So uh, we've been doing that, and uh, we're up to the book of Nahum. Along with that, we are compiling a, a, a list of study material through these tapes that five, six, seven, eight, ten years down the road of the Lord Terry's is coming, that uh, new Christians coming in will be able to get in and have a consistency of coming through the books of the Bible and basically understanding what those books mean before they read them. That's one of the biggest problems young Christians have. They want to read the Bible, but how many times I've heard them say to me, I don't know what I'm looking for. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm reading. And, and nothing will get boring quicker than trying to read something and not understanding. And of course, the key to figuring out the Bible is knowing what the Bible is all about. And we're putting a study together here where each book of the Bible is detailed out what it is historically, as it relates to history, what it is doctrinally, what it relates to the second coming of Christ, and what it relates to in a practical sense, uh, because just getting history and getting the futuristic prophecies are great stuff, but if you don't get the practical, the inspirational, the material that goes straight to your heart, that helps you get through every day of your life, then you know, you're missing out on great things in the Word of God. So we're trying to teach you how to get the Word of God from a balance historically, doctrinally, and inspirationally, so that when you come to the books of the Bible, you'll know what to look for, what those books are about, and how they fit into those three areas. And then we'll build on that uh, as we continue to go through the Word of God. Now, the book of Nahum, <clears throat> and as we, like I said, as we've come through the book of the prophets especially, we've seen the Bible establish a great truth. And that great truth and that great doctrine is the doctrine of the truth of the restoration of the nation of Israel. We've seen the concept that Israel is going to be restored someday. And we focused on that Thursday night, or Friday night. We focused on that New Year's Eve. And we, we really took that concept and showed you how it, it, it goes all the way through the Bible. It is the theme that uh, brings itself all the way through the Scriptures. And then the focal point of it is the time period that we're living right now, which is going to end with the rapture of the church, the tribulation period for the nation of Israel, 
and then the second coming of Christ and then God's kingdom on this earth uh, will begin, which is commonly called the millennial reign of Christ in your Bible. So we laid that all out and we built that around the chapter of Matthew chapter 24. And uh, today we're going to go on because the book of Nahum uh, just happens to be the book, as I've already said, that just slides right into that study. And uh, it really helps define some things that will really help it pull it even better together for you. Yet at the same time, the book of Nahum has got some great practical lessons that we need to see today. And yet I, as I put this book together this week and looked at it, I thought to myself, wow, uh, the, the mind of God, the timing of God, and the, for God to see exactly where we're at right now in our church, the study we just took, but yet more than that, the times that I'm spending with you one-on-one throughout the week in the Word of God, building your lives, getting you ready, uh, this is a great timely message for, for everybody. Now, historically, 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 the book of Nahum really focuses on the uh, southern tribes of Judah. It's a book that deals with the time right before the exile, which we've talked about before, and it focuses on Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, if you remember in our study a couple of weeks ago when we studied the book of Jonah, Nineveh was that city that God told Jonah to go to, to preach to, that he didn't want to. And Nineveh was a very wicked city, but it wanted God's word, and uh, God had prepared that city, and there was a number of people in there that were willing to give their lives to God in the Old Testament sense and be, make them his make them. Uh, make him their God. And we saw in the book of uh, Jonah how that Nineveh was a key city. And uh, the breakdown, the breakdown is really easy. And all these breakdowns you want to put in your Bible at the beginning of the, of the book so you can automatically see it. The breakdown of Nahum follows the line of the rest of the prophets. And it is a book, it's only got three chapters in it, but those three chapters are filled with hell, death, destruction from end to end. And it deals, again, with the coming judgment of God on Nineveh. Nineveh is about to get whacked. And we're going to find out why, and we see the great parallels uh, as we come through it. Chapter 1 deals with God's doom to Nineveh declared. And in that study in chapter 1, you begin to see the character of God in God's judgment. You see the character of God, how God judges, or in fact, how, you know, the, the, the different attributes of God in His judgment. In chapter 2, you find the judgment being described, and you find in that chapter how God judges, the means by which He brings a nation, a people, individuals, the judgment. And in chapter 3, you find the judgment deserved, and you find out in that chapter why God judges. And the whole concept of these three chapters puts you in a historical perspective of why God does what He does in the Old Testament. And Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, that great city, is an incredible picture uh, of what uh, your life and my life should be. That city, historically, was the great city that Joshua carried the message of God to, and many people in that city repented. And then, years later, our time now, they turned their backs on God, and now God's judgment falls them on them on full force. And with that little historical background, the putting in the book of, of Nahum in some kind of historical perspective for you, we see two great concepts. We see the practical lessons for our own lives that we're going to look at here in just a second. And then we see the great doctrinal lessons as we come through this chapter by chapter of Matthew chapter 24 
of the budding of that fig tree, the nation of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for those that have come today, and may the Word of God be a challenge to our hearts today. And Lord, if there's those here today that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, I pray that through the preaching and the teaching of your Word today, and through the Holy Spirit of God, who, who will reach down through this message, because Father, I myself have nothing to offer. I'm just an unworthy vessel that you've chosen to use. I don't have any magical powers to make the Word of God come alive. I don't have any funny little glitchy sayings that will make the Word of God stick. I don't have any ability to change anybody's life, anybody's mind, or anybody's direction in life. That has to come through your Holy Spirit. But Father, I pray today that as a vessel willing to be used of God, that you'll flow down through me today and let the words be the word that you want to be said. Let this message be the message that touches the hearts of your people. And we'll thank you and praise you. Teach us today. Lead and guide us into all truth. We'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask you. Amen. Now, I want to talk about this book from an inspirational ap application, first of all. And, uh, you know, Friday night, we, uh, we really, uh, in, a, in a way, uh, we simplified history. History can be very complex. History can be something that you can get lost in. Why, on the Middle East history alone, I talked about the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Empire alone, you could spend a year going through. You go to the library and find, you know, 20 foot of books on the Ottoman Empire. You could immerse yourself in that. A history is, can be very complexing. And a lot of people think the Bible is very complex. I've learned over the years that both history and the Bible are very easy to understand if you just use the Bible as your guideline for it. And basically what we did Friday night is I showed you how to take the Bible and take a complex subject like history and make it understandable. There wasn't anybody in that room that night that, if, that does not have the ability to understand that history in a simpler form and then add to it from that point on. And that's really what the Bible does. You know, we look at man and we look at all the struggles of personalities and people and we look at all the things in the world that we're up against uh, at work, you know, with your friends, your family, and all the decisions that we have to make in life as Christians. And you know what? It looks complex. The Christian life, in fact, this is why many people don't get saved. And very frankly, this is why after a lot of people do get saved, they never really, they never really do anything with God and seemingly fall back into the world, uh, not to be lost again, but certainly uh, not to fulfill the mission of God uh, as God would have them to fulfill it. You know, all through the ministry of my life, I've looked at people, and, and it took me a couple of years to figure it out, but it's something that you and I are going to have to figure out if you're ever going to be used as a real minister of God in dealing with people. And I've told you before, the ministry defined in the Bible is not something you do. The ministry in the Bible is what you do with people in the Word of God. The ministry is people. And that's why I told you from day one, I'm not interested in hobnobbing around, you know, and I'm not interested, I'm only interested in one thing. That is making sure that my people uh, can get everything from the Bible that they want. And that's why from the very beginning, really all of my life, I've had one policy, and that is simply this. I will spend an hour a week with anybody helping you understand the Word of God, putting it together, letting you ask any question you want to ask, because if you don't have that ability to learn then you'll never really learn the Word of God. Most people want to learn the Bible. Most God's people want to learn the Bible. And uh, the fact that many of them don't 
is found in this great story here and why they don't. And uh, as I said, the Christian life can appear to be complicated, but in truth, it's very uncomplicated. You know what? You don't come through the first chapter of Genesis. Then you find out what the issue is through the rest of the Bible. And it's the issue in your life today as it is the issue in my life. And it will be the issue that defines whether you are successful as a Christian or not successful. You know what it is? It's real simple. Light versus darkness. That's all that it is. That's all that it is. In Genesis chapter 1, you find the two concepts by which everything through the rest of the Bible and everything in your Christian life and even in everything in your life before you were Christian is built around. It's, and it simplifies the whole system. It's light, that's God, versus darkness. That's the devil and the world and all of the things that are against God. And you find it when you come to the Gospel of John. I think the greatest book in the Bible for a young Christian to begin to understand and really see the concept of is the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, we know that Christ is portrayed differently than the other three Gospels, and He's portrayed in a different fashion in every Gospel. And, oh, we're going to have a tough, fun time when we get to the New Testament. We'll just be in a couple of weeks. Can't wait for that, can you, Mindy? That's a good girl. Oh, good girl. Okay, now, the Gospel of John is a great book. Because the Gospel of John is a book that portrays Christ as the Son of God. It's an incredible book that lays out God's Son as deity. And in John chapter 1, verse 9, we find a great verse. And you don't have to turn to these now. You can just listen to it because we're going to turn some places here in a little bit. He says this, John chapter 1, verse 9, That was the, talking about Christ, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John chapter 1, verse 5 says, that the, going back to Genesis, that the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now the whole concept of the Christian life, the whole concept of history, and the whole concept of the world is simply nothing more than light versus darkness. This church exists for one reason. I as a pastor exist for one reason. You as a Christian exist for one reason. And that is to let, the Bible says in the most simple form, let your light shine. The church is about light. It's about truth. It's about projecting the truth, the Word of God, as God wants it to be laid out. Without any politics involved, without any, without any shamming or shimming, without any uh, misdirection of truth, simply laying out the Word of God, putting the Word of God out where everyone can grasp it, and then making it easy for people to learn about God uh, through the Word of God. That's why the Bible says uh, that in Psalms 119, verse 30, it says that the entrance of thy word giveth light. He says in Psalms 119, verse 105, that the Word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This world is darkness. What the Word of God does for you as a Christian, it becomes your flashlight. It becomes a lamp under your feet and a light under your path as you walk down life's road. Because in that darkness are many obstacles. In that darkness are many things that will trip you up as a child of God because the devil wants you back into the darkness and not continuing walking in the light. And the Bible says if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. 
and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Then the light is the Word of God. The light is what God gives us in our lives that, to lead us through the darkness of this old world that we don't stumble. Now, with saying all of that, that's what God does better than anything else in the whole wide world. He gives light to men. Now, I don't understand the process totally because I've only been around for 54 years. But I know, and I know we look at circumstances, and because we're human, we, we tend to rely on the circumstances rather than the Word of God and, and understanding that God does it the way that He wants to do it. But God's job is simply this. God's job is to touch every man and every woman when they come to that point in their life where they're ready to trust Christ as their own personal Savior. God's job. God's job is to reveal Himself to them through light. Now, I don't know how God does it in every way. Certainly, I'm not, I'm not as foolish to think that God only does it, that you've got to go to church. I'm, God does it through many, many ways. But God reveals Himself to man. That's God's job. God's responsibility is onefold to man. It is to make himself manifest to man. He is the true light, the Bible says, that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's God's job. God dealing with unsaved people is nothing more than at some point in that unsaved man or that unsaved woman's life that God reveals himself. They understand the fact that they're a sinner. They understand the fact that there's no salvation outside of Christ. They understand that their good works, their giving, and all the things that so many people put the emphasis on really isn't what God puts the emphasis on. And they come to the conclusion through the light that God gives them that they need a personal Savior. And then at some point in their life, they either do one or two things. They either accept that or they reject that. A saved person. A saved person gets the light to get saved. And then the Bible says that God begins to give him more light or her more light. At that point, God says, okay, now I've given you enough light to get saved. I'm going to give you more light now to show you that now that you are saved, I have a job for you to do. And just very frankly, as an unsaved man sees the light of God and either says, yes, I'll get saved or I won't get saved, a saved person, once they are saved and faced with the reality that God saved them for a purpose, now you have a second question you have to answer in your life, and it is, yes, Lord, I'm going to take the, the revelation of light now that you've given me that I am saved, and I'm going to be what you want me to be, or I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm not going any farther in my Christian life. And you would be surprised to think that God's people would do that, but they do it all the time. Our life is about choices. And our choices, I don't care what they are, are about one of two things, light or darkness. Life's simple. You know, when I was a kid growing up, and I was just a little guy, all of my family are from Maryland. Anybody here from Maryland, originally from Maryland? Anybody? Okay, that's all right. <laughs> Maryland is a very small state with not many people in it. I'm third generation coal miner. I mean, I never mind coal, but my family go back three or four generations as coal miners. Because in Maryland, as in Pennsylvania and as in West Virginia, uh, coal mining back in the 20s and the 30s and up into the, even the 40s and the 50s and the 60s was, a, you know, was, a, was the mainstay. 
And uh, my great my grandfather was a coal miner. My father worked in the mines for a short time. My grandfather's father was a coal miner. And uh, every year, well, my mom and dad, before I was born, moved out to Ohio. And, you know, my dad went, this was right when the war started, World War II, and my dad went to work in a steel mill, and my mother went to work in a steel mill, and they, they worked there, and I was born there, my sister was born there, and, and then, you know, we came to Kansas City in 1975, 76, and, you know, you know the rest of the story of why we're here today, and I'm here today, and you're here today, and God pulled this whole thing together. But I remember as a kid growing up, my favorite times was when we would go back to Maryland. As a little kid, Maryland was like the wild, wild west. Now, you go back to that same little mountaintop where my, my dad's sister lived, Aunt Nettie. Now, that isn't a Maryland name out of the 50s. Aunt Nettie and Uncle Clyde. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Now, that is something, uh, I mean, out of Lampoon's family vacation. I'm just telling you. Aunt Nettie and Uncle Clyde with a cousin named Darlene. And they lived on a, kind of like on a, on a mountain. And as a little kid, oh, and they had a pond with stocked with fish. And it was, now, to you go back to today, it's probably all built up with houses and, you know, not bad. But back then, oh, when I found out we were going to Maryland, we would leave on a Friday night or a Thursday night. My dad would drive all night long. And we would get there, you know, and in the morning, I'd go to sleep in the backseat of the car, knowing in the morning I was going to smell Maryland. And when I woke up in the morning, there it was. The air was cleaner. The birds were bigger. You know, uh, the, the, the water was cleaner. The fish were bigger. It seemed like that deer were everywhere. Squirrels were everywhere. I mean, it was a, my dad would go out and fish in the pond. He liked to fish. He'd catch bass that big, you know, and he'd fight there. And I'd walk around the thing with my little BB gun, bopping the frogs, you know. And, and, I, and then a little bit later on, oh, I remember walking through the woods with that little single shot twenty-two. I remember from the NRA, I got my Eddie Eagle Award. A little later on, I got it from God, but back then, I got it from the NRA. And I'd walk down through there, and I'd, at night, they'd tell stories. They'd tell, my Aunt Nettie was a great storyteller. She was a liar is what she was. <laughs> I never figured it out till later. <laughs> but boy, she could tell some great stories. And she would tell ghost stories. I would get so excited, and I'd think, it all, and then she would, and, and, and in the morning, you know, I'd go out there, and the mist would be over there, and I'd head down to the little field, my little rifle, you know, and I'd shoot squirrels and chipmunks, and you know, it was just a great time. I'll never forget, one time we were out there, and uh, in the, one of the, in the coal mines were, were pretty much being boarded up at that point, and I'll never forget that in that, in that time we were there, somebody, two, two guys got lost in that coal mine. Because we used to go there, and they used to show me where my grandpa worked, and it was all boarded up, and, but you could pull the boards off, and, and they would never let me go back in little tracks, and it was dark, and water was dripping, and there was beams hanging down. And there was people, they probably lost, you know, that's, they probably lost a, a lot of people every year. That's why there's not many people from Maryland who go into them <laughs> caves, you know. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, the story was that these two guys went into this cave, and people saw them going in, nobody saw them come out. Well, they called the rescue people. And the rescue people came down, you know, and, and they, for, for three days, they found those, they, they looked for those people. And those mine shafts would go out and turn and go. They would, they would go everywhere. I mean, there was hundreds of miles. They'd go down, they would go up. There was ladders that took you down and elevators to other shafts. For three days, they looked for these guys. And then on the third day, they found them. 
And when they brought him out, to everybody's surprise, these two guys had committed a robbed a store and was running into the mine to hide. And the reason why it took them three days to find them is because when they saw the people coming, they thought it was the sheriff's department, and so they would just go back farther in the mine. Years later, when I got into the ministry, that story really figured out a lot of things for me how about dealing with people. Now, you see, the real issue is this. If you're really lost and you really want to be found in that mind, you see a light coming toward you, you're going to go toward that light. If you don't want to be found because there's something in your life that does not go along with the light, in these guys' cases, they were going to jail, all you do is go back farther in the darkness of that cave so the light can't find you. And after being in the ministry, you know, 10 or 20 years, it suddenly struck me one day why people, God's people, don't want to do what's right when it comes to the Word of God. How they can say, I'm saved, and then suddenly go back. I, 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 you know, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm weirder than the average person. I know that going in. But I don't understand. And I'm not perfect, and I do lots of dumb things. But I don't understand how anybody who gets a taste of that book and sees what it is, especially in the world that you live in, could ever want to go back to what it was before. Let me tell you something. If somebody gives me a nice steak, and then I see I've got the difference between a steak and going out and eating slimy garbage out of a garbage can, I don't have to pray about what one I'm going to eat. And I just can't figure out why some of God's people want to go back to the garbage until I understood the story of a little kid looking at that mine and that guy going in there and hiding in there and somebody going in with a light. You know what? God comes after us with a light. Once we get saved, God shines the light of that glorious word in our lives and says, you know what, Bob? I want to take you to the next level. You know what, Jeff? I want to take you to the next level. You know what, Alan? I want to take you to the next level. You know what, Dave? I want to take you to the next level. You know what, Steve? I want to take you to the next level. You know what, Jimmy? Never mind, Jimmy. You won't make it. <laughs> oh, sir, Jimmy. Jimmy bought me a present. You're going all the way to the top, son. Just stick with it. But that's what he does. You see? That's what he does. And we have a response to that. You either go toward the light because you want to learn everything that God has, or somewhere along the line you get your preconceived ideas about what you want to do and don't want to do what God wants to do. So the more you hear the Word of God, the farther you go back in the cave. And yeah, you'll even find you a church that will preach to you that won't step on your toes, that won't, that won't make you accountable. You know what? In a small church, it's hard to hide. It really is. Now, that's a good thing. I don't look at that as a bad thing. And I've always been somebody, I don't care where you're at. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. As long as you want to do what's right with that book, hey, I'll give you the shirt off my back and I'll give you everything I can to help you get there. But I'm saying this. You can't hide in a small church. You just can't. Because there's a job to be done. It needs to be done. We don't have the resources of 10,000 people or even 1,000 people or even 500 people to make it happen now. It relies on, on and it, it doesn't take long to find out who's sincere and who isn't. 
It doesn't take long to, without saying anything about anything to anybody. It doesn't take long. Now, I know in this crowd right here, we've got a lot of people that are on their way. And they're doing, they're doing things. And you know what? You, you do, you're right on schedule. You're right on schedule. I'll tell you what. I have the greatest job in the world. I do. See, a lot of you look forward to coming to church on Sunday and then coming on Thursday night. I love Sunday, but I can't, then I really get excited about Monday. Because Monday, I got another Bible study, and well, we have fun there. And then Monday night, somebody's always coming over that I can teach the Bible to and have fellowship around where to go on that. Then I got it on Tuesday night again, somebody comes over. And then on Wednesday night, I got some more come over. And then on Thursday night, we do it all over again. I need a break on, 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 on Friday. I'm going to start on Saturday here pretty quick with Alan. And then it starts Sunday again. And I just don't, I'll tell you what, I don't know what else to do. That's why I am the way I am. I, I mean, that's why I, I just, that, that excites me. I don't know anything better in the world than, and, and the best thing about it is not that we meet together. No, that's not it. Don't miss the point. The best thing is watching you grow. Oh. Oh, I've seen some of you young men and young ladies that didn't know nothing. And yet a year later, man, you're putting it together. You're, God is using your life. God is touching you. You're, you're developing. Uh, and, and that's where it's at. I see the excitement of the questions on Thursday night. I see the, the people that, and, and the excitement in your faces on Sunday morning. And I know that this church is a church that people here want to, they want the light. They can't get enough of the Word of God. It's, we, we'll talk about it all day long, 24-7. But I also understand, and you need to learn this because of where we're going. See, it's fine right now, and we're great. And I believe that God has, is, is put us here and brought the people to us that we need as a ministry base, giving us some old ones, some new ones, some in the middle of the thing, people who are, are starving for the Word of God, yet people who want to minister, they want to do what's right. They want to, I believe that God brings that in and formulates and shapes a foundation, and then God begins to use us in aspects of ministry. And that's what's coming. We're going to talk about that in a, a couple of weeks. Moving toward the light. But in the process of that, you need to understand that the ministry... And this is the problem that we all have to deal with. I have to deal with it. You have to realize and understand that in the ministry, you can't take things personal. You just can't. You can't wear your feelings on your shirt sleeve. You can't. You've got to cowboy up when you get into the ministry. You've got to be tough enough to know and understand that people aren't going to like you. You've got to be tough enough to know that not everybody is going to run to the light. Some are going to back off from the light, and they're going to blame you for it. That's just the way it is in the ministry. And you see, when you get it in your mind that the church exists to put out light, then you also have to understand that people are going to have two responses to it. And this whole issue is about light versus darkness. It's as simple as that. Guy said to me one time, he says, well, I'm not coming back to your church. And I said, well, what difference does it make whatever church you stay home from? <laughs> like that was a great statement. Well, I'm not coming to church anymore. Well, what difference does it make whatever church you stay home from? Because that's where it's at. And, and I'm telling you, there's two questions asked in the Bible. And I don't know if you even know this or not. God asked an unsaved man in Genesis chapter 3. He asked Adam. Adam, where art thou? When God knew where he was. And from time and eternity, 
God is going to ask every unsaved man and unsaved woman, as he gives them the light, where are you? Where are you in relationship to life and my son dying on the cross? Then there's another question in the Bible found in John chapter 1 verse 19. And the question here is to a saved man. And the question here is, who are you? Because after you get saved, your success as a child of God depends on you understanding who you are in Christ Jesus and building that relationship with God along that line of thought. Now the city of Nineveh had gotten the light from God and now they have drawn back to the old ways. They have rejected the light. You know, tomorrow, I'm going to start my normal routine. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm going to feed the dogs. Then I'm going to head down to the fitness center. I do every Monday. Except this Monday is going to be different. There's going to be 10,000 people there. Last Friday was the last day I was there. There was 26 people there. I counted them on purpose. Tomorrow, there will be 10,000 people there. There will. And I'll have to wait while people sit on those machines reading their books. I have never understood why you go to work out, work up a sweat, get the whatever off, and do what you got to do, and you actually think you can work out while you're reading a book. People riding a bike. And you know what happens? I watch it. I did a study of this while I'm waiting for somebody to get off the machine. I'm sitting there pondering. I learned from life. I'm an eagle. I soar around, look at the rats running for the holes. And I watched this thing and I thought to myself, as they read, something happens. They get more interested in the book than they do their workout and then they back off from the workout. If you want to really work out, you've got to pump iron, sweat, and then when you're done, you throw the weights down and bang, you step back and say, yeah, man, that's what I'm talking about. That's what you do. Now, Monday, there are going to be 10,000 people there. <clears throat> I'll have to wait. <clears throat> Probably by Friday, there'll be 500. <clears throat> and by the next Friday, we'll be right back to the 26 people that were there before <laughs> New Year's. Now, we laugh at that, but I'm going to tell you a great truth. God's people are the same way. We make our big decisions for God and what we're going to do for God. <clears throat> and then as time goes on, we back out of that and we head back to the cave. People are funny. I mean, they really are. <clears throat> Human nature is the greatest study in life, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, people want to be the center of life, the number one in the world. Look at me, I'm number one. But then they want to walk in the middle of the road. And when it comes to the church, they want to be in the last back seat of the pew. No offense for you people back there today. <laughs> well, yeah, a couple of you have offense, yeah. <laughs> But that's where it is. That's where it is. People are incredible. You witness to an unsaved man, he gets close, and then he says, no thanks. Let me tell you something. Opportunity knocks maybe only once in life, but temptation will knock at your door all your life. A saved person gets the truth, they get the light. 
but there's no stabilization of the Bible principles in their life. They never learn how to use the book. And, they, and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with everybody, especially you young people. But I'm going to be honest with everybody in here. Now, here's the problem. God cannot compete with your wonderful, exciting lifestyles you've got going. At some point in your life, you have to make a decision and make the break. Because God just can't compete with all you've got going on in your life that puts you so busy that God always winds up getting the short end of the stick. Now, I'm just telling you. I, I looked at this flood in Indonesia last week. What a, what a terrible thing. I mean, I mean, thousands of people killed. And I know God's hands and everything, you know, and God knows what he's doing. And I'm not making any judgments on it one way or the other but I'm just saying I, I as the as the things came out in the and the in the video came out of the people being swept away I, I could not help but make up some parallels I watched this one video very early on in the week I watched this one video and somebody was taking it from another angle had a camera and here are people on a porch and here is a guy down on the beach or the road and they're calling for him to get up here Somebody over here who wasn't even part of the deal is taking the picture or taking the movie camera of it. He's down there looking around, waving, talking about this, and the way, and you see the water coming up, and he's waving, and, and everybody's saying, screaming for him to get up there where they're at, and suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this wave. He sees it, he tries to run, and it is the most incredible picture I've ever seen. It's just like, here's a man, full-grown, six foot, 200 and some pounds, standing there, and all of a sudden, he's totally engulfed by this gigantic wave with all the debris, and he just absolutely disappears in it. Now, I thought to myself when I saw that, boy, if that isn't a picture of the way some Christians live their lives, the preacher stands up here saying, get in the book, get in the book, learn the book, get the principles, learn this, learn that, don't be, be here, be there, don't miss Thursday night, be over here, get there. And, and I'll tell you what, we stand down there saying, hey, look at me. You know what that guy thought? That guy thought what a lot of God's people thought, that he was different than everybody else. He thought, and young people have this problem, <clears throat> he thought he was invincible. He thought he was more powerful than that wave. <clears throat> and he thought he could stand there and play the, uh, the big tough guy, <clears throat> but when it came down and he realized that he could not do it, it was too late and there wasn't anything anybody could do for him. How many times I've seen God's people think they can keep one foot in the world and one foot with God and think they can survive. Not in the day and age that we're living today. God cannot, he cannot run with the crowd that you run with and he just can't keep up with all the competition you give him. And I'm afraid, my friend, that you're going to come down to the end of this thing and you're going to see that God had a plan for your life. <clears throat> And that plan for your life was based on the Word of God and the light that God gave you after He gave you light to save you. And God wanted to reach down in your life and use you. He had a plan. You're part of an intricate program. And because of the fact that when we saw the light, because we wanted to do our own thing, we just moved back in the cave. And we didn't go toward the light. We didn't stabilize ourselves in biblical principles. The Bible calls this in Ephesians chapter 4 where he, date, where he talks about Paul writes to the church of Ephesians. He says, give no place to the devil. Don't give any latitude to the devil. None. Two great lessons in life that you ought to learn as a child of God. One is God is not the author of confusion. If you're confused in your life about your spiritual well-being or where you're at, that isn't of God. 
God is not the author of confusion. And the second thing, and they go together, you better learn, God never violates his own principles. You live your life, I live my life by the principles in that book that dictate every decision, every circumstance, everything you have to face in life is laid out for you that you don't have to make a bad choice unless you've got an ulterior motive. When you see the light, you want to go back in the darkness of the cave because of what you want to do and what I want to do. It's as simple as that. Now that's the practical lesson out of this book of, of, of Nahum about the city Nineveh who once had the light and then rejected the light and then got God's judgment. And the principles fit exactly because just like Nineveh lost the blessings of God and went back to the world, so many of God's people get the light and then in time they reject the light because they want to do what they want to do and they wind up going back to the old ways and never fulfill God's plan in their life. Now doctrinally, wow, wow, <clears throat> this whole book deals with the second coming of Christ. This book, like all the other prophetical books that we've looked at, deal with the, the end time of Christ's return at the second coming of Christ. And it deals exactly in, within the timetable of Matthew chapter 24, which deals with the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, if you've got your little bookmark with you, you don't have to get it out, but on the back of your bookmark you will find, uh, uh, as you find in chapter 1, uh, the key words. Chapter 1 is loaded with them. The key words on the back of your bookmark, and they're all listed by subjects. The key words are words in the Bible that wherever you find them, they always denote the context, so it helps you know where you're at what you're reading. So you're coming to Nahum chapter 1, and you start coming down through here, and it looks confusing, and you're not sure what you got. You don't go very far before you hit verse 3, and you've got the word whirlwind. We know that whirlwind, wherever you find them in the Bible, the context will be second coming of Christ. It's got storm. Second coming of Christ. It's got cloud. That's Acts chapter 1. That's the second coming of Christ. In fact, when you look at this thing from a doctrinal standpoint, here's what you got. Remember when I taught you the book of Jonah? I told you that Jonah is a Jew who was told to go to a Gentile city, Nineveh. And I told you that in a doctrinal concept, that is a picture of the 144,000 Jewish men who are saved and then go back to the Gentile world in the tribulation period. You find them in Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14. 12,000 from each tribe that evangelized the Gentile world during the middle of the tribulation period. And you find that Jonah is a picture of that. He's told to go to the Nineveh, a Gentile city, he's a Jew, and to take the message of God. And we find that this whole thing is a picture of that concept in the tribulation period. And we find now that God's judgment is falling on Nineveh because Nineveh, or many of the people in Nineveh, have rejected the message of God. And now we're starting to see doctrinally, because of their rejection, the judgment of God, the doom of God. We see it declared, described, and, and how it's deserved. And our little breakdown. So you start to come down through chapter 1, and in verse 3 you find the word whirlwind. In verse 4 you find the rivers and the seas that are dry. Well, there's James chapter 5, verse 7, with the ministry of Elijah, the former and the latter rain. We've talked about that many times. In verse 5, you have the mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth burnt at his presence, just like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And in verse 7, you have the day of trouble. That's the book of Job. Anytime you find that, it's the tribulation period. And then look in verse 9, the word end, which is defined for you in our definitive chapter of Matthew chapter 24, the end of the tribulation period. And then if that wasn't enough, look at verse 15. Feet on the mount. Feet on the mount. Feet on the mount. Well, there's only one mountain where the feet come on that is blessed and glorious. And that's the mount of, of, uh, of uh, 
Olives at the second coming of Christ in Zechariah chapter 14 when Christ steps off that horse and his feet hit down on the planet, the second coming of Christ. Then in chapter 2, chapter 2, you have the second coming of Christ continued. And yet I've got to show you this because this is worth seeing here. I mean, you've got to see this. And you're going to learn a lot today. I hope you do. But in chapter 2, you've got to see this. It says up here in verse 3, the shield of his, now the context is second coming of Christ. The shield of his mighty men is made red, second coming. The violent men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches, context, in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one another against uh, in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. You know what you got there? You got a context at the second coming of Christ with chariots that run like lightning and run like torches. I wonder what he's talking about there. He's talking about automobiles. The context there is the second coming of Christ. You say, why wouldn't he say that? Because if in the 16th century, if he would have wrote the Fords banging up against the Chevys and the Broadways, who would have understood it? You know, the Bible is, people, it's incredible. A man said to me one time, he says, well, you know, the Bible's not scientific, Bob. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, the Bible says the sun rises and the sun sets. He says, we know that's not true. The sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't set, the earth turns. I said, you got a newspaper there? He said, yes. I said, what time does sunrise? He said, 6.30. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Bible talks plain and somebody says, well, I don't believe it. It's not scientific. And God talks scientific and somebody says, well, I can understand it. There's something wrong with man. Don't you know that? There's something wrong with man. Guy said to me one time, I taught this years ago in a Bible study with, with teenagers, and one of the parents got really hot. He was kind of a Bible uh, theologue. You know, he, uh, he thought he was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And so he challenged me afterward, which, and he says, he come up and he says, and I'm stupid. I mean, I don't know anything. I mean, I just believe the book. I mean, I know the context, second coming of Christ. And, I, and he comes up and he says, well, brother, he says, I don't appreciate you teaching my kid that that's automobiles. And I said, well, what is it? And he says, well, the chariots. I said, what was the chariot? He said, well, it's something you got in the road. I said, don't you get into your car and ride? He said, yeah, but chariots are pulled by horses. I said, what kind of car are you guys? He said, we got a Ford. I said, how many horsepower do you got? <laughs> something wrong with man. Oh, don't even let me give you Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. When you go over there, it's talking about the same thing, and it talks about the exact same circumstances, except there it says that the fuel is fire. You step down on the accelerator, the fuel shoots into those pistons, I think, and then what happens? The fuel becomes fire. I don't know. Okay, thank you. Can you start a car with a screwdriver? Oh, see me, I'll teach you whatever you want to know in the Bible if you told me how to do that. I, there's nothing cooler in this world than pulling up along somebody on the freeway that can't get their car started. I love it. You walk up there and it won't start, and you ask the question. I love it. You got a screwdriver? Yeah. He takes that screwdriver, sticks it down in there someplace, and says, with all the confidence in the world, try it now. Like, it ain't going to start. He knows it's going to start. I tried it one time. I burnt the screwdriver right down in the middle. 
I will give you whatever you want out of the Bible if you'll show me how to start a car with a screwdriver. I think it is the most awesome thing in the world. I think you're never a man in life until you learn how to start a car with a screwdriver. But I'm telling you, you got this, and you know, and God puts things, the Bible's the most scientific book in the world. I don't even know if you know that. I mean, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and all them back there in 1400 when Christopher Columbus wanted to go around the world and find a trade route to the, to the, uh, to the east, they were saying the, the world's flat, the world's flat. The greatest religion in the world was saying the world's flat, the world's flat. Isaiah said it was round 2,000 years before the Pope had the formula taken out of his, out of his syrup. Isaiah knew the world was round. A while back, they found a spectroscope that, that parts the light. Job talked about that in the book of Job. Somebody said, Thomas Edison made the first phone, and somebody else, Morris, made the first telegraph. Well, Job talked about the telegraph long before they ever did it. Einstein put out his theory of relativity, and the whole scientific world learned the fact that light's always moving and never stops. Job said that in 1918 B.C., so when you come to this little thing here, don't, don't let it kick you. I mean, the Bible's always apropos to whatever society you're living in. Now, when it was chariots, it was chariots. And today, when we have cars, Fords, chariots were pulled by horses, your car's pulled by an engine, it has horsepower, and you set engines like a chariot. In the context of the second coming of Christ, and the fuel is fire. Verse 11. It talks about the young lions, the old lion, and the lion's wealth. We've talked about this before. We know how this lays out. The old lion's the devil. The young lions are the ten confederated nations in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. The lion's whelps are the people within those nations that are against the Jew in the tribulation period. Notice down here in verse 13, that lions get devoured by the sword. See that? 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says, Your adversary the devil goeth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he gowns up getting devoured by the sword, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, when a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, of which he shall smite the nations. You can't beat the book. In chapter 3, it talks about the bloody city, Babylon, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Verse 18, the king of Assyria, the Antichrist. Look at verse 12, and here's where we go. The fig tree. Ah, here we go. Buckle your seatbelt. Get a big breath full of air. We're going to go down deep where the whales live. The fig tree, Matthew chapter 24. And look down through there in verse 12. It says, All thy strongholds shall be like the fig trees, which the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but we started a thing Friday night. And I brought you up and showed you how that whole thing with Israel is built around one passage in Matthew chapter 24, the parable of the fig tree. That parable of the fig tree talks about the time that Israel puts forth her leaves. That time has now been designated for us in history as 1948. Now from that point on, we know we've got some events that are going to take place. We know we've got the rapture of the church. That's the next event. Then we know we've got the tribulation period. That's the event after that. That's when God deals with the nation of Israel, chastises them, and then brings them back. And then we've got the second coming of Christ when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, which then goes into the millennium. That's Revelation chapter uh, 19, 20, 21, and 22. If you are taking, want to take the Bible and lay it out. Now we know that the whole issue here, the whole issue about Israel, the whole issue about Israel, 
in its lowest common denominator is about bearing fruit. I want to walk you through the Bible, and I want to show you how this thing lays out right from the beginning of your Bible, right up to where we were the other night, and then beyond how this thing fits at the rapture of the church right into the millennium. I want you to bear with me here. First thing I want you to do, and we all need to look at this, so now we're going to get into it together. Come over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I want you to come to verse 33. Now what happens in Matthew basically is this. The book of Matthew records Jesus coming to Israel as the king of the Jews. Where John records him as the son of God, where Matthew and Mark records him as a servant, Luke records him as a son of man, Matthew records him as the king of the Jews. You know that. So we begin to see that in Matthew, he comes to the nation of Israel, they reject him. And the moment they reject him, the message of the kingdom goes into parables. One of these parables is found in verse 33, and this parable is the most important parable you're ever going to see in out the whole Bible. If there's any place that the, everything I did for you the other night on Friday night in four and a half hours is laid out in one series of verses, it's here. This is the one place in the Bible where you get God puts the whole history of the Bible, what the Bible is about, what the Bible's focal point is in one story. Now I'm going to break it down for you, but we're going to read it first. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and they went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us come and kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now that story looks confusing and complexing until you do what the Bible says we are to do and we allow the Bible to interpret itself. Bob Alexander does not have to stand here and try to figure out what these things mean because these things are all defined for us throughout the Word of God. My point is, the closer you get toward the light, the more you come and learn, the more you let me work with you, the more you learn these things, the faster you get them, the better you put it all together. It's light versus darkness, out of the darkness to the light, back into the cave. Your choice. Now here's what you got. It says a certain householder. That householder is defined in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 as God. God has a household. We've talked about it before. The seven members of God's family stretching through the dispensations of the Bible. God is a householder. The Bible says that that householder planted a vineyard. That vineyard is defined in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, and Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, as Jerusalem. Isn't any debate about it? Any debate about it at all from the Bible standpoint? I mean, you can make up your own cockeyed concept, but if you stick with the Bible, this is what you got. Now, the Bible says that he 
hedged it round about. That would bring us up from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Joshua. It says he hedged it round about and he digged a wine press and built a tower. That's God protecting the nation of Israel. God protects the nation of Israel supernaturally in those books. In all of those books is where he does the great miracles. The sun stands still with Joshua. The sea is divided for Moses. All the plagues, everything that takes place, God is hedging about, keeping everybody out, and keeping Israel right on track, and God is overseeing them. But, oh, then something happens. When he builds a tower, the Bible says he lends it out to husbandmen, and he goes into a far country. The husband will be the kings of Israel. Now we're up to 1 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles. This is where he, and you know what you don't find? You don't find God doing any gigantic miracles in this time period. In Exodus, Leviticus, up through Joshua, he does all kinds of spectacular things. When they get into the land and the kingdom gets established under the kings of Israel, David and Solomon, God doesn't do any gigantic miracles ever again. You know why? Because he went back into a far place and he turned this over to husbandmen, the kings, the prophets, and the leaders of Israel. This is what you got. And the husbandman took his, uh, and, and when the time of the fruit drew near, verse 34, that's what Israel's about. God brought them, he hedged them about, he planted them, he made them into a nation for one reason. He wanted the whole world to bear the fruit from Israel, but Israel has to bear that fruit. And the Bible says, God told Abraham, in thee will all the nations of the earth be blessed. God intended the nation of Israel to be the conduit pipe of the blessings for every nation on this planet. Right now, he still are. The world is against it and don't know it, except us. In time, they will know it when Christ comes back. But when he went back and God goes there and turns it over to the, the husbandman, he expects them to bring forth fruit. They're in the land. They've got all the land like you saw on the maps the other night. they got everything. They're in the place and the position to bring forth fruit unto God. And you know what happened. The devil steps in. He whacks them. And down they go. Let's see what happened. Verse 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. And you'll find that uh, in Amos chapter 3 verse 7, Revelation chapter 22 verse 9, and Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 12 and about 1,200 other places in the Bible. When the time of the fruit drew near, he sends his servants, the Old Testament prophets, and those Old Testament prophets will come in and say, Hey, Israel, where's your fruit? And the Bible says, And the husbandman took his servants, and the Bible says that they beat one, that'd be Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, 14, killed another, Jeremiah 26, 23, stoned another, 2 Chronicles chapter 24, 21, nothing like a Bible to figure out history. And again he sent other servants. That's all the rest of your major and your minor prophets. And they did to them like they did to the first. Verse 37. First coming of Christ. But last of all he said unto them his son. Saying they will reverence my son. First coming of Christ. Lord Jesus Christ shows up. God's son. 
Look what happens. But when the husbandmen, verse 38, saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard. <laughs> Boy, how Constantine and his mother got it wrong when they mailed the church of the Holy Sepulchre inside the city. Bible says he's crucified outside the vineyard. That's Gordon's Calvary. General Gordon, by the way, was one of the British officers with Alan Mee, who was a Bible-believing Christian that took down the Word of God and laid it out and figured out where Gordon's Calvary was, the real Calvary. That's why it's called Gordon's Calvary, after General Gordon. And then he says down here in verse 40, they killed him, they crucified him. Verse 40, when the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen. Second coming of Christ. The whole concept that we talked about. Well, I should have just gave you this and we could have ate more the other night and went home early. No, no. You got to see both of them. I had to lay out the long one. There's a method to my madness. I had to lay out the long one. And now I'm giving you the concept that pulls it all together. Now we know now that we've got the story in Matthew chapter 21, and that's the story. We now know that the real issue with Israel is fruit-bearing. Always has been, always will be. That's the only reason God put them there. In the millennium, every nation on this planet is going to get the blessings of God through Israel. That's what God intended under David and Solomon. It never happened. And that's why the world hates them now. We know the story. We studied it Friday night. But it's going to happen again. And that's why Israel has not bore fruit. And that's why for 2,500 years from 606 B.C. to 1948, she has bore no fruit. Watch. Say in Matthew chapter 21 and come back to verse 18. Now, this story will make sense of what I'm just going to give you. Now, here's Jesus coming out on his way, and this is the last week before his crucifixion, and he's on his way coming to Bethany. And he says in verse 18 in Matthew chapter 21, same chapter, Now, in the morning as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on these henceforth forever, and presently the fig tree withered away. And then he tells you the story of the fig tree. The fig tree is now clearly understand and defined in the Bible as Israel. For 2,500 years, that fig tree bears no fruit. It's got the curse of God on it. We know why. We have no king but Caesar. His blood be upon us and our people. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32 through 34, we looked at the other night, he says this, Learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender, he putteth forth leaves. You know that the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation, the generation of the generation that is the generation of 1948 that sees Israel put forth her leaves, this generation shall not pass till all these things, and all those things he's talking about in the rest of that chapter are the signs of his coming, the tribulation period, and the second coming of Christ. All these things shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Notice verse 33. It is near even at the doors. Two doors in your Bible. One in Revelation chapter 4, one in Matthew chapter 25. Two doors in your Bible. Two doors. 
Revelation chapter four, Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, you find John talking to the church, the church, the church, the church. 21 times in three chapters, you find a reference to the church. Chapter 4, verse 1, a door is opened up in heaven, somebody goes out, you never find the church again. Listed in the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Why? That door opened up is the rapture of the church. Matthew chapter 25, you find five, uh, ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Five take oil in the lamp, five don't. Bible says, while the bridegroom came, they all slumbered and slept. And the Bible says that they were ready, went with him, and the door was shut. Two doors. One for the rapture of the church, one for the second coming of Christ, tribulation saints going up the second coming. He's saying there, when Israel becomes a nation in 1948, it is near and it is even at the door. That's why it's plural. Now, come over to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. I'm going to show you this process. We know the story. He cursed the fig tree. The fig tree puts forth leaves in 1948. That is a fixed date. No question about it. A fixed point in history which is undeniable. After 2,500 years. Now watch this. You know the book of Song of Solomon. We studied it intimately when we came through it in our study throughout the Bible. Not too long ago. Book of Song of Solomon is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, typified by Solomon's relationship with his the, the, the virtuous woman that he found. We went through all of that. And yet it represents in many ways, uh, in a practical application, it shows you and I, remember I told you that the question for a Christian is, who are you? Well, the way you find out who are who you are is find out what, how God sees you, and you find out how God sees you when you study Song of Solomon. Not only does the book of Song of Solomon teach you how God views you, it shows you and me as a child of God how I'm to view Him. And the Song of Solomon has got one of the greatest passages in it that show you and I Christ coming for the one that He loves and taking them away. Picture the rapture of the church. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. Don't even have time this morning to take those windows and lattice, show you where they're at in the Bible up there. My beloved, 816-358-6783. Call me. We'll sit down and I'll help you. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For the winter is past, rain is over and gone, flowers appear on the earth. I think the saying is, April showers bring May flowers. And what do we have all the time is the most favorite time, a June bride. My, my, my. Flowers appear on the earth. Time of the singing birds come uh, is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard on land. Now, that's not that little turtle on the commercial where the guy's got the camera. And that little turtle jumps up and says, dun, 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 ain't we got fun? That's not what it's talking about. This is a turtle dove, a bird. But I like that little turtle. I think he's neat. The flowers appear in the earth. The time of the singing of the birds has come. The voice of the turtle is heard on land. Oh, look at verse 13. The fig tree, there it is, putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with her tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and 
come away. Okay, here's what we got. We got for 2,500 years, Israel is no nation. Because they didn't bear any fruit. And the key is, they have got to bear fruit. The reason why they're going through what they went through right now is because they refused. They refused to accept the light that God gave them and they went back in the cave. 1948, that fig tree puts forth leaves. At the rapture of the church, those leaves have now grown into green figs. And in Nahum chapter 3 verse 12, All the strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe fruits. If they shall be shaken, they shall even fall to the mouth of the eater. Now, in the tribulation period, we have the first ripe fruits. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 24. You'll see how this thing plays out. I don't know if you know it or not, but Israel is like three fruit-bearing trees in the Bible. There's three different studies you can take that will bring you to the same conclusion. I'm just giving you one of them. Israel's like a grape tree. You say, well, a grape's not a tree. According to the Bible, it is. You've got a grape tree or a vine tree. They're likened to an olive tree in Romans chapter 11. They're likened to a grape vine or a grape tree in Isaiah 17:6. by the way. And then they're likened to a fig tree. Three different ways to study Israel's fruit bearing with three different aspects that bring you to the same bottom line conclusion. Jeremiah chapter 24 verses 4 through 7. Again, the word of the Lord, keep in mind now, 1948 she put forth green leaves, put forth leaves. In the rapture of the church, she puts forth, the fig tree puts forth green figs, not ripe yet. She gets into the tribulation period and we find the first ripe figs. Now we get into the millennium. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, watch this very carefully, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, Israel, whom I have sent out of this place in the land of the Chaldeans for their good, Israel. For I have set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will watch it, Bring them again to this land, 1918, and I will build them, 1948, and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. Now there it is. 2,500 years, that nation hasn't bore any fruit. God says, you're going to bear fruit. In 1948, the hand of God moved down through history and brought them, well, in 1918, he brought them back with the Belfort Declaration. He, he began to change that land. And then he, God plants them in 1948. And at that point, they become leaves. A short time thereafter, any second now, rapture of the church takes place. And by that time, the fig tree has got green figs on it. Into the tribulation period, the fig tree gets its first ripe fruits. And then in the millennium, when they get the heart for God, when they're back with God, that He's their God and they're His people, they finally bear the fruit that God intended them to bear. And for the rest of that time and on to eternity, all the nations on this earth are find their blessings in the one nation by the one God 
through the one book, the nation of Israel. Now that shows you and I as a child of God. You want a New Year's resolution? Most of God's people don't need a New Year's resolution. In their lives, they need a New Year's revolution. You need to dump the old things and say, you know what? There ain't no time left. We're at this thing right here, man. We're someplace in here right next to the green figs. Man, this thing is right on the timetable. That Bible says that that generation will not pass away. We're in a time lock here. We're in a time frame here. This isn't some ecstatic, well, Christ is going to come surely in the next thousand years. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a generation that we are already 50-some years into that the Bible says all you got to do is look around you in the Middle East like we did the other night and see exactly what's transpiring, exactly what's happening, exactly where England was and now she's not, exactly where America was and now she's not, and see the world events around you knowing that God is on the verge of doing doing what the Bible says he's going to do, restore his people. And in the process, you and I are going out. Right now, you're like Israel. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. God saved you, just like Israel, to bear fruit. And just like Israel, you have a season. In God's infinite knowledge and wisdom, and I don't understand all this, God chose you, allowed you, and in His foreknowledge put you to be born where you're at, put you in the church you're in, and gave you what He's given you for one reason, that you might bear fruit. Now, you've got a decision. The light's right there. You either go toward it or you go back in the cave. But in ministry, as you're dealing with people, you're going to realize a great truth. Not everybody, Christians, wants to do what's right with that book. And you're going to find when they get a look at it and the light's too shine and the light's too bright and the light's too hot, they don't, want to, they don't want to accept the light and they'll go back to a comfortable position. That's just the way it is. I'm telling you right now, there isn't any one person that any church has got to have. All that church has to have is one book. And the Holy Spirit of God will do the rest. Everybody in this room, including me, is expendable. This thing, success, isn't built on any one person that we just got. Uh, you just got to be here. Let me tell you something. It's built on a community concept of our hearts becoming one with God's heart and realizing where we're at in the last days up against the second coming of Christ, where Israel is, where those figs are growing green, brother. And we're, somebody said, what's the next sign, brother Bob? What's the next sign before Jesus comes back? Man, I'm not looking for a sign. I'm listening for a sound. It's over. Now, you know you not want to accept that fact because you've got big plans for the rest of your life, but i got some news for you. You better get off that bus and get on this one. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your perception is. It doesn't matter what, your, what you think reality is. Reality is the one book says that God is on a plan. He's got a plan. He's going to establish His nation. You and I are part of the process. And our job is to find out in these last moments of these last days where we're at, what God wants us to do, link arms and get it done that we're found faithful when He comes for us. And this next year, I'm not going to tell you it's going to be the last year. I'm not going to intimidate you and scare you into that. But I'm going to tell you this. I can't speak for you, but I listen to, I preach every message like it might be the last message I preach because it just may well be. And I've learned also to listen to preaching 
like it's the last message I ever hear because it may well be. Nobody's promised tomorrow. And I'm telling you, my friend, there's a job to be done and we have to get it done. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now I'm going to be finished here in just a second. We'll be out of here. But let me just say this to you. You've been here Friday night, most of you. You certainly heard what was said today. And I know as well as I'm standing here. Because the Bible says, He's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I'm not a preacher who likes to motivate by fear. I'm just preaching you the truth. I'm telling you up front and personal that you better figure out where you're at in relationship to what God is doing because God is doing some things. And just as old Joshua went to Nineveh and said, Hey, look, boys, you better get ready. God's coming. I'm telling you, boys and girls, you better get ready. He's coming. And if you're a child of God and you're already saved here and you're a member of this church, you need to take a look, hard, lasting look at where you're at last year, what you learned last year, what your attitude was about the things that God was doing last year, and, and change whatever needs to be changed. You need to learn the principles in your life. It's as simple as that. And that's why in the course of any church, you'll find people that don't want to come anymore. They get a better offer. They get a better deal. They'll look for every excuse. They don't have to sit here and listen to the ravings of this madman. That's okay. That's okay. Everybody makes their choices in life. But I'm telling you, he died for you and he loves you. And the message today is simply clear. If you've never been saved, you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, I know sitting here that God has touched you. Not because of me, not because of anything I said, but because God's Holy Spirit dwells in the presence of God's people. And when the light is expounded and the light is put forth, God does what He does best because He is the true light that lighteth every man. The light you have been touched with this morning is the true light. It exposed your true condition. And sitting here this morning, right now, right now, whether you do anything about it or not, sitting here this morning, right now, you know, every man and every woman in this building knows through the witness of the Holy Spirit of God if the rapture would come right now or you would die on the way home, whether you would go to heaven or whether you would go to hell. You know where you're at because the true light has asked the first question to you, and that is, where are you? And right now, you're struggling, yes or no. Right now, you're struggling to get this thing over with. So you, right now, that's the way it works. I went through it. And if you're a child of God here right now, God is asking the question, hey, where are you? 